Hello and thanks for listening. I'm Liam Gammon. I'm the editor of New Mandala. The conversation you're about to listen to was recorded at Cambodia on the Brick, a public conference held at the Australian National University on the 9th of March 2018. This is the second of two podcasts of panel discussions at that event. If you go to the New Mandala SoundCloud page, you can listen to another really interesting conversation about what the world can do to respond to Hun Sen's crackdown. You can also now download and subscribe to all of New Mandala's audio releases through iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. The focus of this panel, though, was the challenges facing civil society organisations and the media in Cambodia today. The discussion was moderated by Associate Professor Sango Mahanti from the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. To speed things up on the day, we did not mic the audience, so I'll just pop in to paraphrase questions from the floor. Here's Sango introducing the panel. So, um, this, I think we've already covered in a fair bit of detail this morning some of the challenges that are facing civil society and media at the moment in Cambodia. It's quite an uncertain time. We've heard about increasing levels of surveillance, closures of media outlets, NGOs. And rather than run through all of that again, because I think it was covered quite well, I think um, what we're going to do here is pick up some of those issues and flesh them out, think through some of the implications. What, What does this all mean for the operations of civil society and the media in Cambodia? What is their role currently leading up to the elections and beyond that? And we've got three very well-qualified panellists to speak to those issues. And what we're going to do, each session has a slightly different format. We'll just have short interventions from each of our panellists and then go to a, a more open discussion. So I'd like to introduce first Priyap Kol, who's with Transparency International Cambodia. Over here we have uh, Billy Chia Lung Tai, who is a human rights consultant based in Australia and also Julia Wallace, who is a freelance journalist based in Cambodia. So we'll start with uh, Cole, if you'd like to kick off. First of all, my great respects to to all the distinguished guests and uh, colleagues from the panel. Uh, First of all, just to give a little bit of, of my background, I've been in the civil society field for 20 years. I spent 16 of those 20 years working for different international organizations, and the rest working for bilateral government, including the World Bank. Uh, So let me just give a brief context before I go into the challenges we're facing. Cambodia have a huge number of civil society. After the Paris Peace Agreement and after the first election in 1993, we had thousands of non-governmental organizations register. So far, I would say, the list is still there, showing more than 3,000. But the real active civil society, I think it's probably come down to several hundred only, as far as I know. So we were doing the work quite effectively, and to the point that if you do a referendum in Cambodia to check between government political party and civil society who would be getting more support from the people. I can assure you that the people would vote for civil society more than government, current government, and even some political parties. We are closer to them in the sense that we provide services 
educations and help them to defend when they face some human rights violation and injustice. There was some study in, in 2013 and 14, and that proved what I said, that civil society and NGO is close, very close to the heart of the people. But the thing has changed since 2013. I think after the election in 2013, government ruling parties realized that there was something that they need to take as a measure to regain the ability to continue to run the country in a, as a ruling government. So civil society was one of the groups that were identified as causing the ruling party to uh, lose popularities and therefore there were some plans to take action on it. Following that, we have seen the NGO law called the Law on the Association and Non-Governmental Organization. And the law were written in a very embarked way, not very clear, open to interpretation. And when the court is not independent, it, the judge is not independent, it's up to them to interpret. And I give you one example, one of the article in the law that says, in Article 24, that NGO must remain absolute neutral toward all political party. It sounds very, very nice and it very accurate. And it doesn't explain how to be perceived as being neutral. And it's up to the judge to interpret who they consider neutral and who they don't. So any organization that do human rights reports, publishing corruption reports, doing advocacy, could easily be fall into those being accused of not being neutral, therefore subject to some kind of legal consequences. And this is what happened now. How can you stand being neutral between what is right and what is wrong? To be in the middle of the two, I myself find it difficult to do it. To be able to not speaking up when you see injustice, my conscience doesn't allow. So I don't have a choice. Many of us as civil society leader would have to speak. And oftentimes when we speak up, we have to be watching around what is going to happen. And so many civil society leaders who are prominent, they are now outside of the country. They have to escape from legal consequences or subject to some harassment. So I'm the only few remaining in the country and will continue to speak. And there were some people asking the questions, when is going to be your turn? I hope this is not going to be the case. So these are some of the things that I, I just to highlight. And because of the time, I will just going to highlight a few more things that happen. There are harassment in the form of disrupting the public gathering. It happened to my organization. We gather people and then suddenly police come to say you are not allowed to do the event, so we have to go back. And then this is something happened at the moment. It's difficult to do that now. There are constant civilians. Civilians watching, following civil society leaders, including myself. I spot people watching me behind in, when I have meetings in cafe. Sometimes I have to change the places. I had to put phones somewhere else before going to the meetings. 
even before I came here, I met with the Australian ambassador. We went to a meeting room and then we realized that, oh, we should keep our phone outside the room. So we walk out and leave the phone outside of the room. So these are some of the things. Uh, so I had myself been followed, and I know uh, sometimes we take pictures of the person who follow and show it to the person, why are you doing that to me? Uh, because they, they, they come quite regularly. I also should say, and this is also quite well known in the news, civil society who are working on human rights, good governance, anti-corruption, democracy, most of them are labeled as being associated with the opposition party and therefore fall into the conspiracy theory that we support the effort of the opposition party to overthrow the government. And therefore we are on the list. They don't call it a blacklist, but they call it the white paper, which is quite similar in nature. Personally, my experience, I have been facing some challenges because our approach as organization is to work with all stakeholders, work with the government, civil society, with the business communities, and I do my best to interact with everybody. Sometimes I have meetings with government officials, having some dinner with them, talking on some projects together, launching the event together, and then I have some accusation from opposition party faction saying that I am in collusion with the authority and doing this together, and they have evidence. One of the evidence is to say that that's why I am still there in Cambodia having no trouble because the other are in trouble. After the release of the reports, for instance, Corruption Perception Index, which Cambodia is ranked 161 at the bottom of the ASEAN nations and not really improved you know, the way we expect, the ruling government accused me that I am with the opposition party and doing this to try to shame the government and continue the effort to overthrow the government. So I don't know who I am at the moment, which, which one. But I'm here in Australia with all of you now. Um, so it's very tough just to say that it's, uh, it's been tough, the, uh, tough for the past six months especially, but it's been like that for the past three years, more or less. I personally faced death threats and I have to flee the country in some occasion. But I use a different approach to maneuver the situation, which is sometimes unconventional to others. For instance, when people receive death threats, they would do a press conference, they would inform the journalists, they would inform media to make it you know, known to the world. I didn't do that. I informed the embassies, I informed the authorities, the police, I informed my Secretariat office in Berlin, but I don't go to the media. And the reason I don't do that is because I have been mobilizing a lot of young people to stand up and fight corruption in my country. At the moment they heard that I've been targeted, I've been facing threat, their parents would pressure them to move away from those kind of jobs and stay away from the engagement. So I keep it quiet in that sense. This kind of approach, I took a personal approach to try to navigate and maneuver the situation. To conclude my remarks, I should also say that despite all of these dark and clouds, we have been able to pull some positive reform in the country too. We have studied and we have seen that through our advocacy, through the work that we've put on the anti-corruption angle, 
small and petty corruption have gone down quite remarkably. Remarkably, public services that are essential to the people have been better served, and this across the health sector, civil registry, uh, at the at the crown level, you know, it's been improving. I should also say that public financial management reform has increased revenue from tax for 18 to 20 percent over the past three years as a result of fighting corruption. Last note is that nearly 70 percent of our people are under the age of 30, and I know many of them have the same vision to shape Cambodia. They are more. They have educations. Nearly 100 of them are here in Australia, and many are from different parts of the world. So personally, I'm optimistic that Cambodia will be improved. It's not like this forever. This is, should be regarded as a temporary major storm that we would have to pass through, and the better day, a clearer sky will be seen by the Cambodian people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cole. I know it's a lot to cover in a short time. I think you raised a number of really interesting and important issues that we can come back to in the discussion. Your personal account of surveillance and efforts to grapple with that on a day-to-day -day basis, the role of the media and the use of legal instruments um, in the recent past. I'm going to hand over now to Julia to speak particularly from the media perspective. Yeah, thank you. Just very briefly about myself, I have been in Cambodia on and off, but for around eight or nine years, and I've worked with the Cambodia Daily, I've been an editor there, I'm a correspondent for the New York Times out of Phnom Penh, and I also work at the moment with Voice of America as an editor working with some of the younger Khmer journalists and helping kind of train them and whip stuff into shape there, so I have a pretty broad range of experience. Um, I thought it might be most interesting for me to just talk a little bit, give you guys a sketch of the media landscape in Cambodia over the past 25 years, since 1993. Um, it is a very kind of dual track thing. It's almost like, the, I don't know, the cream on top of a pan of milk or something, the dairy metaphor. Um, at, the very, at the kind of very top, there's some world-class journalism being done in English in Cambodia, and the English language press has been allowed since 1993, more or less, to operate with complete freedom, which is not nothing. So you've had the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post doing really excellent local work. You've had some stuff from Voice of America, from Radio Free Asia in both languages, and you've had international journalists coming in and operating very, very freely um, and doing work of a good quality, which I think those things work in tandem. And then on the other side, you know, much, much bigger, we have the local media, the Khmer language media, um, both state media, official state media, and all the other Khmer language media sources, which to greater or lesser extents are extensions of the state. Um, and those are generally very bad. They're poor in quality. Um, sometimes they're overtly controlled by the government. Sometimes they're simply not really doing their best. And you see here, you know, in some ways, a lot of the same problems that Becky mentioned. Um, you see efforts from the international community to train journalists, but they're not necessarily getting to the heart of the matter. They're training them in superficial things. But fundamentally, this sector remains controlled by the government, and people are not going to move against that. Then we also have actual state media, which um, has 
changed in an interesting way over the time that I've been in Cambodia. So we have had Agence Kampuchea Press, which is literally state media, which is controlled by the information ministry. This is directly a legacy of the 1980s communist past. This is the regime that was in control of most of the information moving out of the government when I first came to Cambodia. It comes out of the information ministry, which itself is very kind of communist structure. I don't know about Australia, but in the US, you know, we don't have an information ministry. It was run by Q. Kanyarvit, who is the minister of information and who was the spokesman for the government and who talked a lot on behalf of the government when I first came. And that evolved in an interesting way, probably over the past, five or so years, but maybe a bit before, um, I think the government realized that its communication strategy was very unsophisticated. This happened in part because the CNRP was all of a sudden communicating in a much smarter way. Sam Rainsi was in exile and he was beginning to use Facebook very intelligently even before he returned in 2013. He was garnering a lot of support. There are a younger generation of Cambodians who speak English and who all of a sudden you know, we're reaping the benefits of having been born in the 80s and 90s and we're having access to um, the kind of top layer of the media that was being produced in English that was really digging quite deep into some of the things that were going on in Cambodia. And you had kind of more access to the internet starting around that time. And you also had the CPP scions returning from abroad, you know. Did they study in Cambodia? No, their parents wouldn't you know, subject them to a Cambodian education. So they studied here in Australia and in the US and they were exposed to a much broader range of communication strategies from the governments here and they learned from that and they learned what it's like to have a free media. And so all of these things kind of were percolating and fermenting and around 2012, 2013, I think the government got serious. The election obviously woke it up. And the first step in that was that you saw government media moving away from this communist, very linear thing, and into, away from, this is quite technical, but away from the information ministry into the Council of Ministers, which is a broader government body, and they formed the Press and Quick Reaction Unit, which was placed under control of a technocrat called Spicy Ta. And that, I think, was actually the first step towards what we have now. And Spicy Ta was kind of working behind the scenes to try to shake things up a little, they started putting out quick bulletins, they started going directly to the media, they started writing op-eds, they started trying to be more reactive. But that still wasn't really that great. They really had to begin to kind of compete better and also to professionalize their own spokespeople. And what they seem to have hit on is something that we've discussed already today, is a kind of quasi-competitive, non-competitive model. So they have, you know, over the last, this is all since 2014, I would say, they have begun to kind of sponsor extremely limited competition. So we've got Fresh News, which is the best example of this. It looks kind of like a real media outlet, and it's really, really fast, and they present their stuff like it's news, but it all comes straight from the government and it's under the sponsorship of most likely Hun Sen's son, who is one of the people who's been tasked with professionalizing this. Then you've got a lot of other new news outlets that have opened up quite recently called, you know, there's one called Swift News, which is run by a competitor to 
the guy who runs Fresh News, and they're both kind of competing for the favor of Hanmani, and you've got a new TV station called Nice TV that is run out of the Ministry of Interior and funded by the Chinese government, and they all go around with T-shirts on that say nice on the back. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they are nice. Um, they're too nice, maybe. So what we've, what we've got all of a sudden is um, you see the government addressing both prongs of the media scene. They're looking at the foreign media who have been very good, very competitive up till now, and they're trying all of a sudden to tamp that down. They're really, really being very restrictive with the English language press all of a sudden and with foreign journalists who are coming in. On the other hand, they're trying to expand the second part of what I mentioned at the beginning. They're trying to expand their reach in Khmer and make it seem more plausibly free and competitive because Cambodians are more sophisticated and they expect that now and the leaders themselves are more sophisticated. Uh, so that's, I guess, kind of roughly what I what I see going on, um, and I would be happy to like answer questions about that, just kind of moving a little bit into news in general and Cambodians in general and what's going on with them. You know, you could say that the free press in Cambodia was illusory because it was just this real superstructure on top of everything, but what Michael said earlier really rings true to me that UNTAC was a huge failure in a lot of ways, but one thing that it did was teach Cambodians what their rights are, what they are meant to expect, and it opened this lid that perhaps cannot be closed even if, even if there are very strong efforts to do it. It's kind of well-attested psychological principle that people really, really don't like having things taken away from them. It's, you know, taking something away that somebody already has is, makes them much more upset than just not giving it to them in the first place. And news, a lot of, of non-journalists don't know how news is made, but news isn't like something that you just pull out of a hat, right? It bubbles up, it's like a ocean ecosystem and like the journalists are the whales and they're eating the krill and the krill are the people, like the human beings who are telling you things, right? And that's something that is, you can't take for granted and that's something that exists in Cambodia and doesn't exist in a lot of other places I've been. You know, you go to Laos and you go to Vietnam and people, don't even want to tell you anything. It's not even in their mind to tell you anything. And Cambodians always tell you things, which I find like extremely moving and interesting. And you know, I haven't lived long enough to know this, but perhaps a legacy of some of the Western intervention in Cambodia that will be enduring. Um, I've traveled a lot in in provinces, and I probably can remember two or three times when Cambodians haven't invited me into their homes asked me to sit down and told me what I want to know, which is crazy. Like, that doesn't happen in America. Like, that probably doesn't happen in Australia. If a journalist came up to me, I would be like, no, go away. <laughs> you know, but Cambodians, you know, always talk to you. Um, and so you don't, I think you don't threaten journalism necessarily by threatening journalists. The real risk, which hasn't quite happened yet, is if people your sources are afraid to even speak and to think, and that's something that I think could be preserved. You know, my, my colleagues are saying that it's getting touchy, and we have ad hoc Likado, people are, people like Prep Cole, you know, they're more nervous than before, but we're still getting this information bubbling up. And as long as that is happening, I think that there is, you know, something really very hopeful and possible, and 
I guess I would just like to end um, by reading out something that a Cambodian told us. Um, a colleague of mine went to go interview him while he was reporting a story actually about the Grassroots Democracy Party, but he was just going around and doing what we do often, which is asking Cambodians, what do you think of this? And getting really quite amazing answers. So this is like just a dude. It's not anybody who was chosen for any reason. I literally just said, hey, you know, this is my colleague On Shingpur who got this interview and he, I just said, go talk to somebody about politics. And he talked to this guy, he met this guy who was building a house, like a little spirit house um, in his yard. And he asked him about political parties and the political situation and the guy said, to have the possibility of building a house so that it's perfectly strong, you have to be able to do it in a perfectly straight line. And from what I've seen from all the different regimes I've lived through, this guy is 63, when a small party grows bigger, the government's going to push it aside and make it start again from scratch. And that has happened many times. And now we choose to remain silent, including myself. People don't dare to make any move because everybody is living in fear. We see something is wrong, but right now we're choosing to pretend that we agree with the narrative that they are right. But even a random cow shepherd in any paddy field knows exactly what's going on and what is right and what is wrong. I thought that was just an amazing thing, and I think that's true. I think we see that a lot. So that's all. Um, do you want to pass your mic? That was very, very moving, and I think you raised some really important issues about transitions that are going on in the media that we can come back to as well. Billy, can I ask you to keep to ten minutes so that we make sure we have enough time for questions? Sorry to impose that on you. <laughs> and I, I guess you're going to speak more to sort of the legal instruments and issues. Okay, great. Um, hi, so my name is um, Billy, and again... Uh, the program introduced me uh, as still working with Comfro. I'm not no longer working for Comfro, similar to my, Michael. Uh, so again, I think it's important to note that um, what I'm saying and what I'm talking about today, these are my own opinions and I don't um, pretend to represent any parties or anyone. So my background in Cambodia started in 2011. Like a lot of Australian lawyers, a lot being relative terms, um, we do these stints in the ECCC, in the Extraordinary Chambers. Uh, I was working for some civil party lawyers, and I think through the interactions between the civil party side and the main side of the ECCC really piqued my interest in the, the, the broader questions on rule of law. And, and Now, I went back to Cambodia uh, under an, a then AusAid program as part of the Australian Volunteer for International Development um, as a human rights advisor to local human rights NGOs. Now, Cole mentioned, you know, that there are over 3,000 NGOs, or at least listed NGOs in Cambodia. Uh, those who are working on human rights issues could probably be counted on, on one hand. I think that the, the one that are sort of really working on pure human rights or democratic issues, the local NGOs. What I want to sort of focus on is some of the perhaps challenges uh, working in a, in a jurisdictions where perhaps I think it's very plainly that the government themselves have no real interest in working collaboratively with human rights NGO actors and civil society actors. Now, unlike some of the service provider NGOs, as I tend to call them, people that are stopping HIVs and stopping malarias and you know, promoting education, there is at least a sense of 
um, collaborations coming from the government. They want the same thing. They want to eliminate, you know, these illnesses, and they want to promote education, at least on on the on the surface. Uh, human rights is a, a different issue, uh, despite the government claiming themselves to be a liberal democracy uh, throughout, you know, ever since Untak. Um, I think it's clear that that there's very little cooperations and very little collaborations. So this is a, a, a big challenge. I think one of the other challenges I really want to talk about is that, in my view, a lot of human rights NGOs working in Cambodia, and I've worked with uh, some of the bigger coalitions in Cambodia, um, and, and they're, like I said, not, not that many, basically sold, uh, the only reason for their survivals are foreign donors. They cannot survive on their own. So unlike perhaps civil societies in other, uh, if we look at historically emerging democracies over the last 50 years or so, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, civil societies are largely supported from domestically. You know, in Cambodia, this is not the case at all. And I think some of the, the challenges that present is, first of all, Western donors are rightly or wrongly quite obsessed with uh, monitoring and evaluations. <laughs> How do you evaluate human rights? How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a particular human rights program that are often runs to coincide with, say, election cycles? Uh, so you have three years to promise or to make a few promises. Now the question is, how do you actually measure what has been achieved? Now that has been a frustration expressed to me both through local NGO actors as well as donor agencies working on the grounds in Cambodia. Donors have their own interests from their governments, because they get their money often from their own governments or perhaps from private actors, um, and they need to balance that interest with what um, might perhaps work or what type of activities will work in, on the ground. They often have complicated bureaucracies that you have to navigate through, um, and this creates huge obstacles in my view, especially when most of those bureaucracies have to be navigated through in English. Now we have to, I think we seem to forget that English is actually not an official language in Cambodia, uh, and uh, yet English is now the most prominent language, certainly in the NGO sector, and you know, I, I, I've tried to write some of those grant applications and assist my colleagues in some of those grant applications to, to the EU, to USAID, to AusAid, uh, and that's, um, uh, you know, you may have very high level of conversational English ability, but you to, to write one of those uh, and to report on things. It's very difficult. And very lastly, um, I think because of these interests, uh, for me, there is a lack of sort of genuine oversight from the donor uh, community to the NGO community. Now, one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot, everyone talks about how corrupt the Cambodian government is. Nobody talks about whether or not the Cambodian NGOs are corrupt. Um, you know, for me, uh, I've witnessed certainly myself um, corruptions from the NGOs. And when I try to raise those corruptions with, you know, uh, foreign donor agencies, uh, for one of the response I got, which I thought was classic, was, you know, we could not see any evidence of wrongdoing on their books. Well, okay, you know, that's probably, you know, logical. So how, you know, from, from that perspective, how do you actually um, ensure that these, these monies are spent where you want them to be spent and, and, and where you go? I want to finish on a positive note. <laughs> I think donor in interaction engagement has created a lot of very capable, you know, younger generation Khmer NGO actors, academics, uh, certainly some of the more long-term projects, 
including the Australia Award, I think has been quite successful in creating these, these human resources. So I think there's a real question, certainly from the civil society point of view, is how we harness these human resources going forward uh, and what we can do with them, really. Thanks very much, Billy. I think some really interesting points relating to language politics and kind of mechanisms for donor involvement, donor oversight in civil society. So I have a number of questions, but I'm going to instead open up the floor to you guys. The panel then took three questions in a row. The first was pretty straightforward, just about whether there was scope for Cambodian civil society to work together with the king. The second questioner was interested in the panel's thoughts on the prevalence of electronic surveillance in Cambodia and made particular reference to speculation about the sharing of Chinese surveillance technology with Cambodian authorities. Finally, an ANU academic was interested in the panel's thoughts on the challenges faced by Cambodian research students who, after studying in Australia, face a lot of challenges when they return to their home institutions and have to grapple with the very intense internal politics that prevails within government bureaucracies in Cambodia. Prab Cole was the first to respond. Uh, I will be very brief. On, on the first question, I, I think it's, it's a very good suggestion. Although the law, the constitution and the recent law prohibit me from making reference to the king, I think it, it makes sense to associate with the king on some social work, for instance, charity, some kind of a tree planting ceremony, school construction and so on. Yeah? When it comes to human rights, governance, corruption, it's, it's very risky to engage with the king. On the spies, yes, I've been, I've been told and I had some sources that I can trust that I mean, China had provided anything, including helicopters, tanks, and equipment to spy. And we were, we were concerned about being listened to our phone conversations. I had to use a phone that is very outdated and I have SIM card switching every two weeks just to avoid being listened. It's not easy. We had to operate under that assumption. Just to address your question, I don't have any, you know, knowledge of the specifics of your question about China. I think there's no doubt that China is funneling huge amounts of resources and money into the Cambodian government's sort of information operation and literally, as I mentioned, have a TV station now inside the interior ministry, which is kind of crazy, and that the, they are trying to inculcate a Chinese media model in Cambodia, and the Cambodian government is very, very receptive to that, and that includes all sorts of things, including, you know, once you don't have a firewall, you can't really reverse engineer that. Like, it's really hard. They haven't managed in Vietnam to do the kind of firewall that they've done in China, and I don't think they're going to do it in Cambodia. It's already too far. People re rely on social media too much for everything. They certainly, you can have, you've seen in the past few months, they've made strong efforts to crack down on that. They've announced that they're going to search Facebook for problematic things, you know, They've prosecuted some people for seemingly very, very innocuous remarks on Facebook. But like any, like people tend to think of social media as some kind of strange beast, but I think it's literally a medium. Like it's not necessarily that different from any other tool of communication. It's not that different from the printing press in the social effects that it's been having. And that can be wielded by anybody still 
and you see it being wielded by the government and you also seeing it being wielded in really interesting ways by people. You know, uh, Lao Menghai mentioned the proverb about, you know, having the eyes of the pineapple on the people and we see in so many ways every day in Cambodia that the people also have pineapple eyes and they're applying that to the government. They're, you know, they're filming things, they're filming issues that go on, they're filming, they're complaining about things online and there are millions of that, you know, and that's not gonna be able to be tamped down completely. Um, I, I want to focus on, I guess, the young Cambodian question. Um, I did some teaching at the Royal, um, the, the Royal University of Law and Economic in, in Phnom Penh and certainly uh, the students that I came across were very idealistic and, and were very much, at least to me, <laughs> represent this, this sort of very strong idealistic generation. Now, you know, a group was talking about how do you preserve that and how do you not allow this to be, I guess, what we would call corrupt along the way as they become admitted into practice or, or be admitted into judicial schools um, to become judges in, in, that, in that environment. The American Bar Association's report um, published a report a few years ago talking anecdotally about how much it costs in corruptions to be admitted into a lawyer, to become a lawyer and to become judges. Now, once you're burdened with these kind of, and we're talking about tens of thousands of US dollars, you know, once you're burdened with these kind of debt, whether they're actual debts or they're debts from families and, and others, you know, that's an investment that you need to now repay in a job that may give you one, two thousand dollars a month at most. So how do you then actually recoup that investment that you've initially put in? Now, this is really difficult. At some stage, I think the reality of, of these sort of economic equations going to come in. And is it um, still, are you still then able to maintain that, that idealism? Um, I think, you know, these are the talent challenges. Okay, let's go to three more. So one, two, three. The first questioner made reference to the late King Norodom Sihanouk's support for the Cambodia Daily and asked whether there's scope for civil society to seek out elite patrons who might be able to provide them with a degree of political protection. The second question was just about whether Cambodian civil society had managed to keep united in the face of Hun Sen's crackdown or whether signs of fragmentation had begun to show. Julia Wallace was the first to respond. Yeah, that was, that was a really good question. And so the question was basically, is there a way in which powerful patrons like Sihanouk can create more space for this kind of thing? And yes and no. Like, Sihanouk was sui generis. There's nobody like him before or after in the, the kind of space he carved out for himself. He was just a very powerful person. And so nothing like that will probably unfold again. You know, in my lifetime, he had a unique kind of power and he was able to do that. Um, maybe the closest analog there would be would be Lee Kado, which has enjoyed a little bit of protection because of Keck Galabru's you know, role. But you know, in terms of powerful patrons, there is a lot of room in Cambodia for powerful patrons. That's what the entire society is built on. But the question is, who's powerful? Which is why I say Sihanouk was quite unique. The powerful people at the moment are patronizing things right and left. But what we have is Hanmani, who has you know two separate clients creating two separate competing media outlets. Um, so I don't think that that's going to be a route that's going to open up a lot of freedom in Cambodia, at least in the media sector in the future. If there's any hope for that happening, I think where it will come from is the government's own need for 
information which cannot be fully stated by you know, its own apparatus, just fundamentally, right? And this is something we were talking about this morning, the dictator's dilemma, the issue of preference falsification, all of this. Like, they're really in a bit of a spot, and that is, that is aside from CNX patronage, I believe why the Cambodia Daily was tolerated for 25 years, because they actually needed to know this stuff. And Hansen read it because what, you know, he's gonna go up to like some dude on the street and ask what he thinks and get a real answer. Like, no, absolutely not. But he does need to gauge public opinion. He does need to know what land disputes are causing issues. Um, he's tried to do that a little bit via Facebook by encouraging people to air it, but it's, it cannot replicate what a free press does in terms of competition. There's really no better model for finding out what information is true than having a free press despite all of its flaws that the government you know, has pointed out many times. Uh, so for that reason, perhaps it will linger in some form. Um, I, I guess Cole will be in the best position to really yeah. talk about whether or not there's actual fragmentation within different civil society actors. Um, from my own observations, I think you know, what I realise is that, uh, that there's two sides to perhaps the civil societies that, that I engage with in Cambodia, the external side, they're very united. The one that they present to the UN when they visit, uh, to the international donor groups, uh, and so on and so forth. So they tend to have, for me, and I've been part of some of that discussions, they tend to have these disagreements within, among themselves sort of dealt with, and then they present this united front. Now, you know, at that very high level, you know, they, they want the same thing, which often they can't get. And I think, I want to segue a little bit, I do apologize, that, you know, I think this is where uh, the, the UN PEPS PR machinery has done a very poor job of, of around expectation building. You know, I think there is this sort of un, unrealistically high expectation of how the UN can intervene in Cambodia that is just not realistic. The special rapporteurs are, are often seen as, as some kind of savior figure. And you know, NGO leaders will talk to them that way. Well, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And the response inevitably is, well, I've submitted a report to the you know, Secretary General, and <laughs> that, that's where it stops. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, I will respond specifically to the question whether civil society are united or they are divided. Um, on the prominent advocates, the circle of not many, I would say about a dozen, they are united and they work together regularly. But more moderate organizations in big numbers would agree and know what is wrong, what is right, but they are so afraid to speak out and to join, even to endorse some statements. They are hesitant to sign up their name into the statement, and this is to avoid consequences. So it, 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 it's very difficult to really mobilize big numbers of solidarity among, across different sectors. Government ruling party create their own groups of pro-government civil society also, and they are now preparing to receive funding from China to fund the NGO as well as an alternative source of funding. And there will be some pressure for the you know, NGO, the regular NGO would have to consider whether they have to join with those groups because if they need funding, if they are under financial pressure, they may have to switch to be able to be 
elig uh, eligible to get funding from those sources. So it's, this is one of the challenges we face. When we talk about something that appear to be relatively sensitive, people think about going out of the country to have those meetings outside of the country. They don't trust that it's safe to sit down, meet in Phnom Penh. And then the best place we can afford to go is Thailand. And the question, it's Bangkok. And the question is, is Thailand really safe? <laughs> you can answer that question yourself. Okay. Oh, to briefly address that question, because you know, as an interesting data point, very recently a lot of journalists have been reporting to me that there's been a change in the level of solidarity that they experience, which I think is interesting because as long as I've been working in Cambodia, no matter who they worked for, the Cambodian journalists were quite, quite tight and they would always go out to eat together and share information, whether they worked for the Cambodia Daily or Rasmai Kampuchea or Kampuchea Tamai, which are, you know, and they would share information. They might just not publish it if they worked there. And this has been a complaint that I've started to hear in the last few months from my friends who are Khmer journalists, which is that all of a sudden a schism has opened up and pro-government journalists are no longer associating with independent journalists and this makes them very sad. They're being told, you know, well, you're just American puppets, don't act like you're any better than we are. And, you know, there's been, there's been splits in the telegram groups and stuff of the different groups, which is interesting and I think possibly a bit ominous. You know, it's most, most obvious. You may have heard about the arrest of two Radio Free Asia reporters a few months ago, and shortly after they were arrested, some explicit photos were found on their laptops, and they were immediately posted all over the internet by Hoi Vanak, who is a former Radio Free Asia reporter who's gone over to the government and is now working very closely with one of the government's media outlets. And this created you know, massive concern among the journalists because, you know, at least before, despite having issues with the government, I think they felt safe among themselves. And now a wedge is being driven in a new way that they're not happy with at all. They're quite scared. Okay, thank you. I think the foreign puppet issue is one that we haven't discussed very much, which is another point that maybe we could come back to. I think we have time for one more round of questions. Let's see how we go with that. So one. The first question was for Julia Wallace, and it was a simple one. Why is the Phnom Penh Post still around? The second was for Priyap Cole. Does he think that after the elections in July, when the CPP is presumably going to be returned with a huge majority, that pressure on critical civil society will ease a bit? Sango Mahanti adds in a question of her own before throwing back to the panel. If not, I might throw in one of mine, which is um, about... Because we had some discussion this morning about the shooting in Krache and reporting on that. And I think Julia had some insights that we'd all be interested to hear. Um, so it was about the Phnom Penh Post and... Situation after election. Post, will life get easier for Hun Sen? All right, this is a tough question. <laughs> I don't want to become a fortune teller to predict this. I used to be quite accurate in my prediction until the last six months. But... Um, Based on the Cambodian history, I think we tend to use the previous records in politics to make an predictions. This, the answer to you is it depends if there will be a political resolution or a compromise solution 
when I say compromise, I don't see any best solution from this political crisis, but there is a possibility of a compromise solution with some political deals that will result in the return of Rangzi and the release of Gamsukha to be back into the political game before, before Khmer New Year in mid-April. If that happens, the life of the civil society will be easier after the elections. But if this is not the case, if CPP go ahead with election with no major opposition, CNRP, or any party considering a legitimate contestant to the CPP, there will be, I assume, a continued protest, a continued demonstration, or any kind of a demand for accountability that will make civil society's situation worse because the ruling party don't want civil society to be in a good position to support or to help to, to play any role in those kind of uh, confrontation between the two big you know, parties. So we, we are like a, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's the right term to say we are like a sandwich in between because it's just a kind of food, but we are not in the case. So we, we will be, the fate will be subject to this kind of condition. I personally still have small hope that there will be some miracle, miracle that will see, small hope uh, that will see some compromise solution in the next four weeks. And if that happens, I think the situation will improve. All right, yeah, so those two questions. Um, first, to just answer your question about the Phnom Penh Post, I don't know. I think that there are probably a few contributing factors. One of them is what you talked about and what I talked about before, that it's, you know, it's really very, very useful for them to have some idea of what's actually going on, and they don't want to completely tamp that down. I think that the Phnom Penh Post has always presented itself as more conciliatory towards the government. You know, their news reporting is quite good, usually, and their journalists are very good. But when they came into the market, they did position themselves as a more friendly competitor to the daily than the post, or sorry, than the more friendly competitor, you know, to the government. Um, their business section has often been quite pro, you know, it's pro-business. That's, that's what they came into the market to do. They, they are business people. The daily is an, was uh, run by philanthropists and, you know, had only one goal, which was to do journalism. And the post wants to make money and survive, and they're run by Bill Clough, you know, who has his own agenda and wants to make money eventually. So connected to that, the third reason that they might still be alive is that, you know, he's a businessman and I think they pay their taxes. <laughs> like, the daily was not very well run for all that I'm very partial to it, um, you know, and the Post went out of its way a few years ago to, to get its tax situation into better order, and I think the daily was a low-hanging fruit. Probably Hun Sen was surprised at how easily it rolled over, um, and the Post is just a little bit higher up there. Um, and the question about Crache, if... I don't know who's been following this, but it's certainly been referred to a few times this morning. Um, this is also very connected to the Phnom Penh Post because yesterday we had a situation where there was a land conflict in Krache and the Maimo rubber plantation and the Phnom Penh Post immediately ran a, a breaking news story saying that six people had been killed 
And that doesn't actually seem to be true. They based it on one person. And like I was talking about how information bubbles up, sometimes that's wrong. We, as journalists, got a lot of information from Licado and Ad Hoc, which are two of the biggest human rights NGOs. It seems like the Ad Hoc guy here got some wrong information. So the Phnom Penh Post incorrectly reported that the government shot six people dead, which you know is a bit of a problem. Um, and we see so many interesting things springing into life after this happened in the last 12 hours. We see people imposing a political meaning on it when it's actually not totally clear what happened, much less what the meaning is. Um, we see people getting very upset for various reasons. We see, uh, as soon as the Post reported this, fresh news came out with a big thing condemning the Phnom Penh Post and saying that they're irresponsible and that this is the problem with the media, which is quite scary. Um, and now, over the course of today, I've been watching as the people that I work with at VOA have been trying to get it right and figure out what happened and trying to, you know, get access. And it does seem like, you know, there was a conflict and we just don't know what happened. Maybe somebody was, sounds like somebody was shot, but we don't know if, if they died. Um, but I guess I would say that one last interesting thing is that the Post made a mistake, clearly. Um, and they've been working really hard today to fix that and going out there and trying to figure out what happened. And I think that despite the flaws of the, the free press, which the Cambodian government has and will tout, and they're going to get very upset about this, um, free media and open competition among media is still the best way to sort out competing claims and figure out what information is true and what isn't. And I want to know what's going on with this, and I'm gonna like leave here and go check the Phnom Penh Post for their updates because that's what's going on here. Um, like fundamentally, people, human beings, like to know things, and that's what the press does. And hopefully, it will be allowed to continue doing that in Cambodia. And Hun Sen likes to know things, so we're all on the same page there. So, can we please thank our panelists for a really interesting conversation? Thank you all. Um, and now I need to hand over That was recorded at Cambodia on the Brink, a public conference held at the Australian National University on the 9th of March 2018. Thanks very much to all the panellists for making the trip to Canberra, and thanks as well to Sango for moderating. The conference was held with support from the TIFA Foundation. As I mentioned earlier, if you go to the New Mandala SoundCloud page or visit us at iTunes, you can listen to another panel discussion from that conference that dealt with regional responses to growing authoritarianism in Cambodia. Keep an eye out as well for regular commentary on Cambodian politics at www.newmandala.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>